We're going to make our way to the book of 1 Thessalonians, but I want us to take a little detour first to the Gospel of Mark. Join me there, will you? Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Now remember, we're headed to 1 Thessalonians. That's the study we're in. So this is just a brief detour, but one that I think is pretty important for what we're going to study today. I want to show you two different times that Jesus asked the same question, but he does it each time with a different edge to his voice. So you've got to read for emotion, and you've got to read closely. Let's do it together. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now let me stop there for just a second. It's incredibly interesting that when Matthew tells this same story, he says that the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked what is about to be asked of him. And people could easily look at that and say that that is a conflict, a contradiction in Scripture. It is not. This is one of those times that you need to pay very close attention to authorship. When you come up against something that appears to be a conflict in the Bible, then just circle back and start asking some very basic questions. Who said it? Who wrote it? What was the dating? What was the context? In this case, what we're about to see is Mark's record of how this all happened. But you need to know this. John Mark is the author of the book, but he is telling Peter's story. The gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. So it's very important to keep that in mind. And as we get into this, you need to be reminded of relationship. Peter, James, and John were the three closest disciples to Jesus, inner circle, if you will. So when Peter writes, or Peter tells Mark to write these words, he's doing so from a different perspective than Matthew. It does not mean that either one of them are wrong. In this particular case, it would be Peter saying, yeah, their mother may have asked him, but James and John, I know them. They're the ones that put her up to it. They're the ones that really wanted this question asked. So Matthew isn't wrong, and Mark isn't wrong. It is not a conflict. It is not a contradiction. It is an issue of authorship and perspective. Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. Okay, even if you're lying, shake your head yes. It's all good. Here we go, verse 35 again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, let me stop there again. We're just, it's going to be a long sermon if we keep at it like this. Really, think about what they just said. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is like a couple of children saying, I want you to promise me something, asking their, their parents, I want you to promise me something before they ever ask. So really what they're saying is, I want you to do for me exactly what I want, and it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. I want you to do for me whatever I want. Promise me that you will. That's what James and John are saying right now. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus, because he's Jesus, well, he just handles it nicely. Look at what happens now, verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love how Jesus handled that whole situation. What do you want from me? They put their request out. Jesus responded to it, but he did it with an edge to his voice. Can you really do this? Can you really do that? Their response, yes, Lord, we can. He said, then you will. But what you've asked of me, that's not mine to grant. So I can't do it. Parents, there's great wisdom in that. When your kids come to you and they ask you the same type of question, or grandparents, when your grandchildren come to you and they ask that same type of question, you follow the wisdom of Jesus. You answer it to the best of your ability, but don't you give a promise ahead of time. You wait and hear what the request is. Now, that's, that's the first time that Jesus asked that question. Did you catch the question? Here it is up on the screen. What do you want me to do for you? Now, you keep that in mind as we go into the next time he asked it. Same chapter, picking up verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, for he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. See the, the difference in the edge in Jesus' voice? Now, there's still some interesting questions here. He calls a blind man over to him and he asks this same question, What do you want me to do for you? Now, why would he ask a blind man a question like that? Well, before we get to that, let, let's look at the response of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus didn't say, I want a good meal tonight. Bartimaeus didn't say, I'd like to have $1,000. Bartimaeus didn't say, could you please put a roof over my head? He didn't answer with any of those surface types of requests. When Jesus made a request of this depth penetrating just like this one does. When he made a request like this of Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus answered perfectly, I want my sight. What else would a blind man say? I want my sight. But still we have to ask this question. Jesus knew that. 
He knew that that's why Bartimaeus was calling out to him. He knew that when he called him over to him and asked the question, Bartimaeus would respond this way, or at least he should. So why, why would Jesus ask a question like this of a blind man? What do you want me to do for you? It was a question to test his faith. It was a question to see what he believed. It was a question to find out exactly what he thought about Jesus. Friends, when we come to the Lord in the most difficult of situations, what we ask of Him is of the utmost importance. When you are facing massive challenges, how you go before the Lord and what you ask of Him matters. If you're not willing to put something like this out like Bartimaeus did, then don't ask anything of God. If you're not willing to get that specific in your prayers, that directed in your prayers, then don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. When you are facing the greatest challenges of your life, how you respond to this question from the Lord determines everything. In fact, let me just remind you that the challenges that we face, well, they all have a purpose. I would say it like this. The trials, temptations, or challenges that come our way are not accidents. They are opportunities. They are opportunities. In this particular case, a blind man received his sight, but he received more than that. He received a relationship with Jesus, one that he wasn't willing to leave. His faith, when questioned by God, brought salvation. What does your faith do? What does your faith do? When Jesus would ask you, what do you want me to do for you? How do you respond? What does your faith do for you? Now, I wanted us to go through that before we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3 for this simple reason. Paul knew how much this mattered. And he loved the people in Thessalonica in such a way that he wanted the most for their faith. He wanted them to understand it at the deepest level. And what he does for them is really incredible. Why don't you join me there? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 17. We left off last week in verse 16. So we're just going to pick up where we left off. I want you to listen close as we make our way through this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy." Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints." Now, this bears a little bit of background again, but only a little bit, because we've been going through this for the past several weeks. So I don't want us to bog down too much on this, but I do want to remind you what's going on, because how Paul sets the table matters for what we will see in just a few moments. I want you to remember that he had come to Macedonia because of a supernatural call. Thessalonica and Philippi are Macedonian cities. He went first to Philippi, and then he went to Thessalonica. Things weren't great in Philippi once he got there. He ended up in jail, and there was a miracle that happened, and from there he went to Thessalonica because he was prevented from going a couple of other places. He only spent three weeks, three weeks in Thessalonica. Then persecution came to land on Paul and Silas in such a big way that they had to get out of town. They went to Berea, and the people that were persecuting them in Thessalonica followed them all the way to Berea and caused problems for them there as well. But in three weeks, in just three weeks, Paul taught the basics of the faith to these people back in Thessalonica in such a way that, that their faith began to grow. Roots began to take hold. Things began to happen there. But Paul wanted to get back to him. You heard him say that. He tried over and over and over again, but he was prevented by Satan from being able to go back. But he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand it. He wanted to know that they were standing firm in their faith. There were no cell phones during those days. There was no email that he could sit down and fire off to him. So he had to take some pretty practical, tangible steps to make sure that they were doing okay. And the one that he took was tough. He said to Timothy, his young son in the faith, but a man that he used wisely throughout his years in ministry, he said to Timothy, you go back. You go back. Timothy wasn't the lightning rod that Paul was. So when he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, he didn't send him back under fire. He said, you go back and encourage them, establish them, exhort them, is the word the Bible uses, exhort them in their faith. So what he was really saying to Timothy is, I laid the foundation, you go build on it. You go build on it. You make sure that the things that I shared initially, they're going deeper into them. You exhort them in their faith. You establish them so that they will never be moved. And that's what happened. Timothy went back. Months later, when Paul was in Corinth, he sent for Timothy because he wanted to know how it was going. And Paul's telling us that. When he couldn't handle it anymore, he sent for Timothy. And Timothy found him in Corinth, and he gave him the report. 
And Paul was built up by it. He said, you guys are doing great. You are doing great. Timothy has come to me and he's told me what you're doing and how you're doing. And I am so blessed by it. So encouraged by it. Love hearing that. But he also detailed for them why it was so important for Timothy to get there. Because Paul knew that a faith without roots would never stand. And he knew that they would come under attack. Folks, that is still true today. A faith without roots will not stand. I've seen it over and over and over through the years. You can ask any of our elders. They've seen the same thing. Any of our staff members, they've seen the same thing. A faith without roots will not stand, and it will always be attacked. Faith will always be attacked. In fact, in the passage that we just read, Paul warned them that Satan was going to come after them. Satan would be attacking their faith. He does it in some unique ways. As a lion, he prowls around seeking whom he may devour, according to Peter. Maybe you need to see that for yourself. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's after believers. He is after believers Paul knew that he would be coming after this church in Macedonia. That's why he sent Timothy back, so that their roots could go deep. And when they were attacked, they could stand against those attacks. Because he is a roaring lion, seeking to devour God's children. But it's not always in our face like that. Satan's attacks aren't. Sometimes they're a lot more subtle. Because not only does he seek to devour Christians, he seeks to deceive us. It's been that way from the beginning. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He also seeks to deceive. One of the easiest ways that he can do that is through doubt. Just by putting doubts in our minds. Just causing you to question and wonder. That's what he did for Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say? But then in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he shows us another level of the attacks of the enemy. If you still have your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, join me in verse 3. Well, I'll tell you what, let's just start verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. That word moved, here we're going to put it up on the screen for you. This word moved in the original language, and I want to remind you that I am not an expert in the original languages, not even a student of them, so I have to rely on experts, I have to rely on other students that I believe are credible in the original languages to help me with things like this. The experts say that this word moved carries a most interesting meaning in the original language. Ready for this? This is it. Wagging the tail. That's what it means. Wagging the tail. It is one of the tools of the enemy. Wagging the tail. In Greek, 
That means flattery. So that none of you will be moved by flattery. Because as other people were being afflicted, some weren't. And they may see that as flattery. Or others, as they make their way through afflictions, they would hear the flattery of the enemy. Remember this, all the way back in Eve's story, when he not only said, did God really say that caused doubts as he tried to deceive her, he went on to say that you can become like God. You can become like God. Just do this. It's what you deserve. Oh my, when when this life is over, you're going to be a God. There are entire religions today that hold on to that type of wagging the tail the promise that you will be a God, that you will be like God. It's the exact same thing. It's a spiritual flattery that goes beyond anything that the Bible ever says. And make no mistake about it, Satan will use that. So Paul wanted to make sure that they were established in their faith. He wanted to make sure that they were exhorted in their faith, that their roots ran deep. Because he knew that a time was coming. And it is a time that he references twice in the passage that we just read. I want to show it to you again. Verse 17 of chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Would you highlight, underline, circle, whatever you need to do, that phrase, at his coming? That's the first time in this passage that he references that. The next time is at the end of chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There it is again, at his coming or at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two different times in this passage he mentions the coming of Jesus. That is something that is often overlooked in modern Christianity. We skip over it, and we shouldn't. We should not skip over it at all, because the simple truth of the matter is there is a coming with Christ that every person will face. In fact, there are two judgments that are attached to the coming of Christ. Now, as Paul would talk about the judgment that he would face and the judgment that they will face, it is true that every person, no matter who we are, will face a judgment with Christ. Some of you are thinking, hold it, hold it, hold it, that doesn't make any sense. I'm a Christian, there is no judgment that I will face because of Jesus. That simply is not true. Every person, believer and non-believer, still will face a judgment experience with Christ. Here's what they are in the Bible. There's the judgment seat of Christ, and there's the great white throne judgment. Now, Paul is talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to come back to that. But I want us to spend just a little bit of time looking at that second one, the great white throne judgment. But before we do, I want you to be able to settle it in your mind that every person will face 
judgment. And I don't want you to settle it just by listening to me. I want you to settle it through Scripture. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now there's no exclusion in that. There is a judgment for every person, every man, every woman, every child. There is a judgment post-death that we will all face. This great white throne judgment, boy, that ought to just scare everybody spitless. It really should. By the way, if you want to know more about these judgments, we're talking about them in Sunday school right now. Today, we're going to be talking about the tribulation period as we're looking at eight terms that everybody ought to be familiar with in the world that we live in today. So we invite you to stick around. Next week, Deanie's going to be teaching on the great white throne judgment. So you ought to be here to hear what he has to say about that. This is an interesting moment in history. It happens a thousand years after Jesus comes back for his church. It's detailed like this in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Well, actually, let me start in verse 5 just to show you how it works. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. John saw that a thousand years after the rapture of the church. Then every person, every non-believer will face the great white throne judgment. And here it is, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. At the great white throne judgment, every person that has denied Christ, every atheist, every agnostic that has never found their way to salvation through Jesus, and every person who has pretended to be a Christian all of their life will stand before the great white throne judgment to find out, to hear the Lord say that their name is not recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And it's called the Lamb's book of life because it's Jesus' book of life. And if your name is not in Jesus' book of life, then this is the end of the matter. The lake of fire. That's the lake of fire. That is the judgment reserved for non-believers. That is the judgment reserved for those in rebellion to God. Make no mistake about it. It's already on the calendar. We know exactly when it will happen. 1,000 years after Jesus comes back for his church. And if your name is not in the book of life, it's what waits for you. That's what waits. Oh, you make sure your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Warren Wiersbe describes it like this. The white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne, there will be a judge, but no jury, a prosecution, but no defense, a sentence, but no appeal. No person will be able to stand to defend himself or accuse God of unrighteousness. I really like the way Wearsby says that at the end. 
You're not going to have the opportunity to defend yourself or no one standing there will and no accusation you bring against God will matter. So you can cry out today, hey, no fair. You can say that a loving God would never do this or that. You can make all those statements that you want and it will not matter. It will not matter. That is the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire is the end of the matter. That's the way scripture details it. Well, there's this other judgment known as the judgment seat of Christ. We'll put both of those back up. Terry, let's just go back to that first slide. The judgment seat of Christ, it happens right after the rapture of the church. So a thousand years prior to the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ takes place. Now, as Paul would detail it in 1 Thessalonians, the judgment seat of Christ is that moment where all of the works, all of the effort of the believers are judged and rewards are given out. He would say that the people in Thessalonica were his crown and his joy. So he was looking forward to the time as a pastor when he would present before Jesus this church. And based on that, what happened with that church is what mattered to the Apostle Paul. Well, for every believer, the same thing is true. What we do here determines the reward that we receive in heaven. If your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you receive the first crown. It's called the victor's crown. But from there, there are some others. There are actually five heavenly crowns that are described in Scripture. We'll put them up on the screen for you real quick. You can just take a picture if you want to. It makes for a really interesting Bible study if you ever want to go through each one of these and explore what all of them mean. There's the victor's crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the crown of glory. That's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. David Jeremiah would describe that moment like this. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is for Jesus to look at the life of everyone lived in him and to determine what awards to be received. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Happens right after the catching up of the church when we are standing in his presence. Every person, Hebrews 9 verse 27, will face judgment. We will all face judgment. For the believer, this is the only one because Jesus took care of the penalty of our sin on the cross. So this is the only one that we face, and it has to do with what we do while we're here. Matthew 25 has a parable taught by Jesus that describes pretty beautifully what it is supposed to be like. Matthew 25, verse 14. This is titled, The Parable of the Talents. Listen close. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and in my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A couple of things to grab hold of from this. Number one, everybody's different. The Lord knows that. And that's, that's detailed pretty, pretty pointedly here. To some are given five talents, some two, some one. But the same expectation is given to every person. Double or multiply your talents. Do something with what God has given you. Do something with what God has given you. Multiply your talents. Here's the second thing to grab hold of. Man with the one talent, when he brought that accusation before God, remember what Warren Wiersbe said, nobody will be able to do that. He came back saying, oh, I know this about you and I know that about you. That was nothing more than his effort to, to lie, to deceive, and say, I'd heard rumor about you and this is who you are. At which time the master replies, yeah, well, if any of that was true, how come you didn't just put it in the bank and get some interest? You did nothing with it. And he threw him outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lake of fire. The judgment seat of Christ is determined right there in Matthew chapter 25. That's what it's like. The Lord just wants to be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Do something with what God has given you. Do something. Use your gifts because God's given them to every person. Use your gifts, because the time will come when you're going to stand before him. Now, Paul knew that. Back in 1 Thessalonians, he did something really cool for his friends. This is chapter 3, verse 11. We're almost done, but this is the point where I told you we were going to go really deep. So, I mean, hold on tight, but grab a mask and flippers, because we are, we're plunging. Here we go. I'll start in verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and, a supply, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul told them, that he was going to pray earnestly for them. And then, in verses 12 and 13, he recorded his prayer. There are four major components to his prayer. They're on the screen. He prayed that their faith might mature, that he might get to come to see them, that their love for others will continue, and that they will grow in holiness. Now, Terry, we're going to come back 
to this slide. But I want you to look at his prayer because something really curious happens in it. Crazy curious happens in it. Are you ready? We're going to jump off the side of the pool. Here we go. This is it. He prays to God the Father and then to Jesus the Son. At the beginning of his prayer, he identifies both. He does it again at the end. Take a look. And he talks about God the Father, and then he talks about the Lord Jesus. Well, in verse 11, we read, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. The first two requests on that previous slide that we'll go back to are offered to God the Father and God the Son. But then in verse 12, huh, he says, And may the Lord, here it is, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Grammatical logic forces us to ask this question. Who is he talking about? When he says, Lord, who is he talking about? He has already identified God the Father. He has already identified the Son. So who is he talking to? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that because his request of the Spirit, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That prayer right after the word Lord is consistent with the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify, to confront, to conform, and to confirm within us our relationship with God. The work of the Holy Spirit is to help grow us. God the Father is the object of our worship. He is the one that we seek to glorify. Jesus is the means by which we can do that. The Son is the one who provides a relationship with the Father, and the Spirit is the one tasked with the sanctifying work of all believers. And so now we have Paul identifying all three members of the Trinity in one prayer. This is a triune passage that shows you the work of all three members of the Trinity. I told you we were going deep. This is a Trinity-based passage that shows us the work of the Spirit. And here you go. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only place in all of the Bible where a prayer is offered to the Holy Spirit. There is not a pattern for this anyplace else. And so the precedent that is set by this shows us that when we are really looking to be rooted and established in our faith so that we'll never be moved, we better be focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So much so that we're asking Him to do for us what He does. Ask Him to do for you what He does. You remember that question in Mark chapter 10? What do you want me to do for you? Well, imagine the Holy Spirit asking that of you. What do you want me to do for you? I want you to convict me of my sin. I want you to conform my life to yours. I want you to transform my life according to Romans chapter 12 that I might become like you. 
that is a request made of the Spirit, the internal working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul asked the Spirit to go to work at the church in Thessalonica. Man, that's cool. That is cool. He asked God the Father for certain things, those first two things. Let's go back to that slide. That their faith might mature. And he asked God the Son that he might get to come see them. Lord Jesus, make it possible for me to go see them. But then, but then, he asked the Spirit for things for them. Friends, you want to change your prayer life? You read that passage over and over and over again and start applying it. You want to go deeper in your own prayer life and you want to go deeper in your own walk with the Lord than you get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. They'll change your prayer life. They'll change your understanding of who God is and they'll change your prayer life. Those two verses have an immense amount of power in them and Paul knew it because he knew what he wanted for that church. He wanted them to be established, rooted, strong in their faith because they were going to come under some pretty serious attacks. He already had, so he knew they would. And he knew it for us as well. So I want to leave you with this because I could keep on going on this subject for a long time now. I want to leave you with this question from Mark chapter 10. As if Jesus was asking it of you. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want him to do? For blind Bartimaeus, his answer to that question led to his sight and his salvation. What's yours lead to? What does yours lead to? What do you want him to do for you? You have to figure that out. It's a personal question with a personal answer. What do you want him to do for you? Get to work asking him. And if it has to do with the sin in your life, the transformation of your life, don't be afraid to ask the Spirit for it. Be careful in praying to the Holy Spirit because there isn't a pattern outside of this passage. So make sure you follow the precedent. You're asking the Spirit to transform you. That means you want Him to reveal your sin you're asking him to convict you of it. And you're asking him to help you change it. That you might stand before the Lord, blameless and holy at the judgment seat of Christ.